As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi there, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Zonal Marking Podcast. Now we're going to be talking about the Champions League final today. It's between Chelsea and Manchester City. Chelsea's third Champions League final. They're going into it with a one and one record so far. Manchester City's first and I've no doubt there will be hundreds of Champions League final preview podcasts. So we're going to do things in the Zonal Marking style. I'm joined by Two MCs, Michael Cox, the tactics writer for The Athletic, and Mark Kerry as well, who is the analytics writer at The Athletic. Thank you for joining me both, but a special welcome to you, Mark. Thanks for joining us for your second appearance on the pod. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. I'm, I'm glad that uh, in the last episode I didn't offend anyone too much with our chat on goalkeeper analytics. So thanks for the thanks for the recall. Yeah, it was excellent. It was absolutely excellent, that. And I think, you know... We're, we're going to try and do things a little differently today. We're not going to do something that tries to touch on everything, um, but rather we'll look at how the two teams head into this, what Michael thinks the game might look like tactically, I get a few numbers from Mark. And then there's one particular wrinkle, which is kind of to do with tactics and selection and personnel that we, we just want to pull at the thread of a, a little more. So plenty to come here. We'll start just with a, 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 a brief overview because... Chelsea head into this, Michael, after quite an up and down few weeks, excellent in beating Real Madrid in the semi-final, quite poor in defeats recently uh, against Leicester in the FA Cup final, Arsenal, Aston Villa. And I suppose my question to you is, is this end of season form that would cause concern for you ahead of a, a game like this? Or can you chalk it down to just end of season vibes yeah I'd say the latter I don't think they've done too much wrong in recent weeks actually I thought they were the better side in the FA Cup final really unlucky to lose from an absolute thunderbolt from Tielemans from 30 yards um, but Leicester didn't really create too much apart from that um, from what I saw they were the better side against Villa on the final day and, and it lost a couple of goals in silly situations really a, a set piece from a corner that was a, a crazy goal and a penalty um, and Arsenal as well. I mean, that was one bad mistake in possession that Arsenal capitalised on. But overall, I thought they were probably the best side there. So 
To me, they still seem a really good side. They're not conceding many chances at all. I mean, their record in that respect since uh, Tuchel came in has been excellent. They're not as clinical as they should be going forward. We know that. But I think, you know, it's, it's still relatively early stages for Tuchel. I think that will come next season. And it's obviously very difficult to predict in a one-off game how the finishing will, will go and that kind of thing. But I feel like they will get chances. Um, and of course, it's down to their forwards, in particular Werner to show that he uh, can be a bit more reliable than he's shown in recent weeks. Yeah, exactly. As Michael said, I think that the, it's borne out in the numbers as well. Their expected goals over time in the league, especially in recent games, as you mentioned, Ali, um, haven't really changed all that much in terms of the quality of chances they're creating and, and they're conceding as well. So, I, as you mentioned, it's, it's partly to do with the games that they were playing. I know they went behind to Arsenal and basically Arsenal just camped out in their own defensive third so they're likely to create more chances you know as a consequence of that and they were chasing the game against Villa so they're again looking to to create more chances but yeah their, their defensive record has is, is pretty much stayed um, pretty flawless and one thing I did look at was their, their pressing intensity and I know that it's been spoken about on the podcast a lot in terms of passes per defensive action PPDA um, and it's taken a bit of a dip I think that's to do with the the fixture schedule I think obviously playing so many cup games and, and fighting on so many fronts that um, I think it's partly down to that. But I don't think there's any cause for concern, I think, to answer your question. Certainly not not from a numbers perspective. And City, of course, they secured the Premier League title with a few games to go. In fact, since then, well, they've been having a hell of a time, haven't they? A 4-3 win, a 3-2 defeat. They finished the season with a 5-0 win. Michael, I think maybe what feels... A big positive for City is that they've been able to prepare for this game without much tension, without much importance on the outcomes of games in recent weeks. While Chelsea, although they did make it into the top four in the end, it it was anything but easy. Have you got any particular thoughts on how Man City have approached the last few weeks? To me, they look confident, strong, relaxed, just some quite positive signs, I think. Yeah, um, I think it's all been about physical conditioning, really. I mean, Guardiola's made a lot of changes throughout the course of an incredibly physically demanding season and certain selections. I mean, the, the selection for the league game against Chelsea was driven entirely by rotation. He, he rested the whole side that had started in the midweek Champions League game with the exception of Edison, the goalkeeper, and Diaz, who doesn't get through too much sprinting. And that meant he ended up fielding an absolutely crazy system that was basically Sterling and Torres's number eights behind Aguero and Jesus, none of whom, you know, were in City's first Choice 11, I don't think any of those will start this weekend either. Um, I think he's probably been subtly testing certain things. I mean, these days, I don't think managers would ever try their actual starting 11 and formation for a big game because, you know, the level of opposition scouting is so in-depth these days. But maybe there's been a couple of things that it would almost be difficult for us to really assess. But just the positioning of certain players, I can imagine he's been testing and just experimenting with different things. But, I mean, they've had so long to prepare for this game that, I'm not sure we can really read too much into recent performances um, or even, in, in, you know, read too much into the, the games between the two sides that we've seen recently, one in the league, one in the FA Cup, because I think there'll be two very different sides, um, potentially different systems as well. So, yeah, these days I think players are so versatile and so comfortable in, in different positions, different formations that we're not necessarily going to see a surprise approach from either manager, but I don't think it's going to be something that, you know, has been trialled in the last game of the season. I just don't think that works. I don't think it happens anymore. Yeah, I mean, they've got such a gluttony of, of riches to be able to to rotate the squad. I think it was, as you said, Michael, on average, about five or six changes per game across the last few games as well. And I think 
I looked at it across the season as well, and I think a key reason why the squad still seems so, you know, remarkably fresh is that they've just they've rotated so much. I think across the season they average three point six lineup changes per game, which <laughs> the average for the league is is just over two. So they're they're well above average. I think the the highest um, number of changes per game to the lineup. So of course, because they uh, you know have been fighting on on multiple fronts across the season, that's obviously necessary. Um, Chelsea aren't aren't far behind them in terms of how much they've rotated as well. So it's indicative of the style of Guardiola and Tuchel to to rotate their teams and tweak them so much. But I think that's a key reason why they you know they still are so remarkably fresh because they've just rotated so much and so frequently. When it comes to Pep, the phrase, everyone else is playing checkers uh, and he's playing chess springs to mind. And that's particularly pertinent ahead of this game because he comes up against Thomas Tuchel and there's a piece that's gone on The Athletic this morning, I believe, written by Rafa Honigstein. Uh, Of course, Guardiola, previously uh, Bayern Munich manager, and Thomas Tuchel uh, with Mainz and with Dortmund uh, of the Bundesliga. And there's an amazing piece. I really don't want to give the really juicy bits away, but the title of which is Guardiola and Tuchel's Meetings in Munich Bars. It was like watching two grandmasters of chess locked in a battle of wits. And that's what I'm most excited about here, the tactical side of this game, how much these two will try and impose their team's style of play while also um, being pragmatic as managers have to be in games like this uh, about the strengths uh, and the game plans of the other side. So, Michael, this is very much your domain. And just pretend for a second that I'm someone who's interested in the tactical side of the game, but for some reason haven't seen either of these sides this season or either match between them in the last few months. Uh, an alien, if you will, who's read both of your books but has no access to live football. Um, how would you describe the general tactical style and principle of these two teams and therefore what we might expect this game to, to look like? Yeah, pleased that uh, this alien's been able to ship the book to Mars or whatever. That's encouraging. I mean, Manchester City, I mean, they're very flexible in terms of system. They still try to dominate possession and prevent counter-attacks with narrow fullbacks. I think the key thing is the fluidity of the attack. There's no defined forward. We know that. But I think there's no defined forward in a different way to some of Guardiola's previous sides. I mean, people talk about him using a false nine at Barcelona. They had Messi, they had Henri, they had Eto, David Villa came in later. This side, really, there is no defined goal scorer. Um, and and the, the player who has been the, the predominant goal threat, I think, has changed in various games. Sometimes it's De Bruyne, sometimes it's Gundogan, who plays either as a goal-scoring midfielder or as a very deep midfielder. Sometimes it's Mahrez, who's had a very good season from the right. So, yeah, that's that's the key thing for me, the, the lack of a real outright goal-scorer. I think in terms of going forward as well, I think they've found the right balance between having starting width and players hugging the flanks and stretching the play, but also those players coming inside and and being inverted and scoring goals, certainly in the case of Mahrez from the right, and to a certain extent from Foden from the left as well. I think that balance has been quite crucial to the way that they've played. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a very, a very interesting, very significant side in a tactical sense because it feels like another step away from playing with a number nine, albeit they do have a couple in Aguero and Jesus in reserve. And I think maybe Guardiola will want to bring in a proper one in the summer. But How would you... Lack of, sorry, go we on. We talk about formations and, and I think we on this podcast have stressed that you know, they are a, a helpful aid, but shouldn't be necessarily considered rigid. I mean, City, their unpredictability, their fluidity. I'm interested to know how would how would you write their formation? You know, is it's not 
is 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 it a, a four four two? Is it a four three three? Is it something that is is just completely unusual that needs its own uh, name? I think it varies between games, but what is particularly clear, and this has always been the case, but I think particularly with this Manchester City side, is that there's two different formations depending upon whether they've got the ball or whether they haven't. I mean, in the game against PSG, the second leg, they ended up playing basically a really deep 4-4-2 block at times. It was almost like watching a Diego Simeone side. was usually in possession what you see is them forming a front five, sometimes a front four, and usually with some combination of players and a narrow block behind them. Traditionally, that's been two and then three midfielders for City. At times, it's been three and two or even three and three. And I think this weekend, they'll really try to prevent Chelsea countering through the middle because that's what Chelsea have done very well against them in, in the past couple of games. So we'll have to wait and see, but there has been a great variety. And like you say, I mean, managers have always said, you know, it's not about the formation, blah, blah, blah. And to a certain extent, that's been true. But I think it's probably truer than ever of this Guardiola side because they are so flexible and there's so many players comfortable in a range of positions. And on a slightly different note, we, you know, people have often talked about Guardiola overthinking things in the big game. I can't really imagine that that will be the case this weekend. One, because the way they, they, they get their plan A is so flexible anyway. And B, because... I just I think this set of players more than ever are just comfortable playing in so many different systems. So, you know, whether there'll be a real tactical surprise, I don't know. But there's so many possible variations that just feel like what Manchester City are used to. And how would you tell the alien about Tommy Tactics, Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea? He's favoured a, a three at the back system uh, since he joined. How does that how do they look to hurt teams? What are their strengths? Yeah, I think it's only been half a game where they've used a back four. I think I'm right saying maybe one against Leeds. But yeah, always a back three. I mean, they build up very patiently. The wing backs generally push high, although I think he's gone a little bit more cautious in recent weeks with the wing backs. Often he's using Azpilicueta and James on the right, which is a bit different from when he was using Hudson Adoy there when he first came in. I think the key player is Mount. I mean, he changes the formation from 3 4 2 1 or 3 4 1 2 to. At times three five two, and and it's been him and Kante have almost been playing on a similar line. Kante has been really prominent in the Champions League, particularly in those two games against Real Madrid. So yeah, I think they're very patient with their build up play. I think you know some people have said, well, he's come in and he's used a system that Conte used when he was at Chelsea. But I think the build up play is so different that they feel to me more like a Guardiola side than the Conte side, even though the formation's more similar to a Conte side. Uh, and Mark, we have had two fascinating games between these two sides in the last few months, albeit, as Michael is at, at pains to say, with heavily rotated teams and with situations that are very different to a Champions League final. But even so, it is tantalising the prospect of these two managers in particular making maybe a, a little tweak, trying to catch the other out, trying to surprise uh, the other one. That really is a, a big storyline here. Yeah, I thought it was just so interesting how so many weeks in advance that Guardiola wasn't willing to show his hand against Tuchel. I mean, I've never known it, you know, so many weeks in advance uh, in that game that they played fairly recently in the league. But yeah, I think as Michael said, I don't think that, I think given the flexibility of, of Man City's team now that they won't really need to have anything out of the ordinary in terms of rotation or any tactical tweaks that, that is going to shock them. I think that, you know, in years gone by, I think that managers are sometimes a little bit, you know, they, they'd like to to try and surprise the opposition manager and, and have a tweak that as much as anything might harm them because it's high risk, high reward, I suppose, because 
sometimes the the team themselves isn't very comfortable with that tactical tweak and it can actually you know work against them so uh, yeah I don't think City will do that whether Tuchel might be tempted into doing something different I don't know what that would be um, I, I'd be interested to know but I think it's yeah for both of them just go with their their best 11 and what they know to be you know their most established tactics this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Michael, there was one bit of analysis from Jamie Carragher on Chelsea's centre-backs, almost man-marking of some of these Manchester City attacking players. And I'm just desperately trying not to call them attackers because we know that many of them we would consider to be midfield players. But, um, it, you know, that's that's certainly something to watch uh, ahead of this game, the extent to which Rudiger, for example, or whoever the outside centre-back uh, on Chelsea's right-hand side is, will be brave and bold in man marking someone all the way into the the deepest parts of midfield yeah that is going to be interesting I think Rudiger's had a good few weeks actually in fact he's been very good since since Tuchel came in considering he was almost bombed out earlier this season under Lampard there are few interesting selection decisions this game I think mostly the teams are set in stone I'm interested in what might happen at right side of centre back there's been a few games where Christensen has played there we previously thought of him as basically playing in the centre as the spare man but I feel like he's the kind of intelligent defender that might suit playing against Manchester City. Whereas Rhys James, I think, he did really well in the cup final against Vardy, but that's because of his sheer speed. Not sure City have as much of that threat. So I wonder whether Tuchel will go, again, a little bit more defensive than, than he was previously and play Christensen as the right-sided centre-back, as Piliqueta as the right wing-back, and James, unfortunately, will be left on the bench. That seems to me the most logical option against the kind of roaming uh, attackers that you mentioned. And would you look a little silly if Man City start with Gabriel Jesus up front? Is that what... <laughs> you, you're not expecting that? I'd be, I'd be really surprised. I'd be surprised if he starts as a number... Well, I'd be surprised if he starts either way. If he does start, I would think it's more likely he would be playing from the left, where he's occasionally done really well in the Champions League for City. And I think he understands that wide role very well that's not something Aguero can do but yeah I'd be surprised if they play a, a default number nine up against Thiago Silva I'd be I'd be shocked and we've sort of flirted with what these teams are doing in their defensive thirds but but Michael you're perhaps most interested in what happens up front with both sides yeah I think so because there's there's a couple of variations that both sides can use and I just think that's where the sides are more interesting tactically I mean Chelsea use a fairly standard three-man defence City have had various experiments at centre-back over the last few years, but this is by far their most settled partnership I can remember in recent years. And yeah, there's options going forward. I mean, City have used various players as as the you know the, the closest thing to a number nine. I think they might use almost that 4-4-2 starting system we saw against um, 
PSG, have De Bruyne in the left channel where he's plays at times in the Champions League run, particularly against Dortmund, did very well there, and Bernardo Silva in the right channel, and just be trying to drag out Rudiger and whoever plays as the right side centre-back into those unfamiliar positions, which in turn would probably create better one-against-one situations for Foden and Mahrez out wide. And going forward for Chelsea, um, I mean, I think it's obvious Mount will start. I think it's obvious Werner will start. I think probably it's going to be Ziyech, isn't it, as the the third attacker, because he's done very well going in behind, which is not something we associate with him in his Ajax days. I don't think he expected to be playing that role when he came to Chelsea, but obviously in the in the game against City in the cup final, did that very well. And in a couple of other big games this season as well, in the um, in uh, in the Champions League run, he's done very well in that role. So for me, they're the, the, the real key decisions in terms of positioning, quite in what zones the attackers are running into, I think is basically the... The key thing I'm going to be looking out for here. For me, I'd say probably Havertz maybe just gets the nod ahead of Ziyech and maybe make an impact from from the bench. But yeah, I think Werner in that kind of left-ish channel and you know the two number tens with Mountain and Werner with with Havertz playing in that false nine role. I think he's he has come into some some form recently, and I think Ziyech has been good in the in the big games in the FA Cup game. I think as you mentioned, Michael. But um, I'd say Werner kind of having just starting off in a deeper role and just stretching that. Uh, that city defence and keeping them honest as much as as possible, rather than potentially being someone that they could try and man mark. But I think maybe Werner in as part of the two tens with Mount and and Havertz coming from from the sort of false nine role and maybe dropping in and, and being able to pick up spaces that Werner potentially can can vacate. Werner is always a big story and has to be a a big one ahead of this game as well because well. On, the, on one level, it's been very evident to anyone watching the games that Werner has had an issue with finishing chances. Um, not to go all Mark Carey, but FB Ref says 11.9 uh, expected goals with six scored, massively underperforming in front of goal. But Michael, just to look at that can miss other value that he might have to the team. Can you understand why Tuchel has been so adamant in starting Werner ahead of all their other striker options, the likes of Giroud and Abraham, even though this finishing issue doesn't seem like it's it's going away anytime soon? I think there's been some games where I've been surprised they haven't used more of a number nine. When Chelsea playing as a deeper defence, I think obviously Giroud is a better option. I think for this, he's almost undroppable. I mean, I, I just think his... He's so frustrating with how often he gets offside and obviously his, his missed chances, but he constantly gets in very dangerous positions in a relatively easy way because he is so fast. His movement behind the defence is so dangerous. I think he's going to start. I think he'll be a real big threat. And I think there's a good chance he'll come good next season because I think he'll, he'll just be a bit more settled. And I think we've seen some more encouraging signs in recent weeks. It was actually interesting, slightly different note, but I was interested to see uh, when you know that one game Chelsea had supporters in against Leicester, how much warmth there seems to be from the supporters towards him. I thought maybe they'd be kind of have grown frustrated of him already, but you know things like that I think can help. Um, but yeah, I think he's a really big threat in this game, and I I do think the high line of City is is an obvious place to exploit. We've seen that be a bit of an issue in recent weeks. I don't think uh, either Diaz or Stones are necessarily that comfortable in a high defensive line. I just think City have played it really well and denied the opposition uh, opportunities to play the through balls from deeper positions. Neither of them, I don't think, are exceptionally quick, certainly not compared to Werner. So yeah, that that is just the obvious area where I think Chelsea can cause problems. Yeah, I think one thing about about Werner as well is that he doesn't really kind of lack too much confidence. You know, someone who's underperforming that much, as you mentioned, Daddy, you'd think that some 
sometimes they'd take a bit of a hit to their confidence but he really does just keep going and keep going and, and make those runs in behind and I took a quick look at um, data from SportLogic, who I know that Tom's mentioned before in terms of their physical stats. Uh, and across all attackers in the league, Werner actually averages 13.6 sprints per 90, which is essentially unrivaled for any other attacker in the Premier League. So he constantly makes those runs and, as I said, keeps the opposition honest. And he doesn't go hiding or shy away. So, yeah, I think that's an, another reason why he'd definitely still be in there because he wouldn't kind of lack the confidence in yeah, on, on the underperformance, I, I wrote a piece this week that I, I thought that he was going to be the player who's underperformed against his expected goals um, the most of any player this season. But in open play, it's actually Jamie Vardy. Um, but he's he's second to Jamie Vardy in terms of underperforming against his XG. So I think that, you know, as you say, I think that he'll he'll become a lot better and score more goals next season, not least because <laughs> the statistics suggest that they will. You know, I don't think anyone can really underperform for too long at that continued rate. So I do think he will um, come back to to goal scoring form before too long. I mean, the Vardy thing's interesting because he's probably the most similar player, or he's probably the most similar player to Werner, isn't he? I mean, just speed into that inside left channel. I expect the, um, you, maybe a couple of the Brighton players as well would be high up. I mean, Mope is very good at doing that. It just his speed gets him into positions, but he's not a particularly reliable uh, finisher. But it seems managers, I don't know whether it's driven by the stats, but it seems like managers do have faith in these kind of players that eventually they will come good. Yeah, and I like that you've you've mentioned his clear value to the team, even if uh, he's underperforming in front of goal. You know, the sort of stuff that is difficult to uh, put down in numbers, but uh, but certainly makes the team better. And as you say, Michael, that ball in behind the high line uh, is going to be presumably the, the, the main way that Chelsea will look to, to break uh, Werner in behind and, and you talk about Diaz and Stones running backwards towards their own goal that Richarlison penalty that, that he won for Everton uh, on Sunday on final day very much springs to mind um, if, if Werner can run onto the ball in space that will be a, a big moment as we look to see whether he might uh, he might move away from that underperformance on the biggest stage of all I, I mean it's a bit of a quirk as well in terms of the, the top scorers for both of these teams this season Michael how often would you have two top teams in the Premier League and competing for the the very top prize in European football who both have a midfielder as their top league goal scorer? Yeah, it's remarkable. As I say, we sometimes talk about false nines, but you usually have a couple of prolific attacking players pitching in. But these are not even, you know, attacking midfielders. Really, Gundogan sometimes has played that role, but I think in in a lot of the Champions League games has actually started very deep. And Jorginho, of course, for him to be the top goal scorer entirely from penalties is just incredible. I mean, uh, shows the value. I mean, obviously it's a slightly different skill from finishing an open play, but it does show the value of having a good penalty taker because teams get so many penalties these days. I mean, I think it's the highest rate we've ever seen in the Premier League. I mentioned Jamie Vardy, eight of his 15 goals came from penalties, which is remarkable. Fernandez, nine of his 18. But yeah, it's, I mean, obviously Chelsea have um, chopped and changed in terms of their attackers playing up alongside Werner which has contributed to the fact that no one scored a great number of goals. But yeah, it's remarkable and and does feel quite significant, I think, in, in the development of football and, you know, these two managers being so keen to deploy so many different attacking threats. I don't think it'll be the case next season because I think City, there's a good chance they'll get a, a really top-class centre-forward and Chelsea because I think Werner will come good. But yeah, two top, top goal scorers being relatively deep midfielders is not something we've ever seen before. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is quite a strange one. I think with, with City, it's potentially a little bit more out of choice. I mean, it's more distributed across the team. I mean, below Gundogan, there's Sterling's got 10 goals, I think. Foden, Mares, and, and Jesus all with nine as well. But take out Jorginho with, with those seven penalties and Timo Werner is the, the top goal scorer, which is crazy to think considering we just said how he's he's underperforming and not having the best season. And Tammy Abraham's also, the, I think, the joint top goal scorer with, with six goals as well. And he's only started 12 12 league games I think all season most of them were probably under Lampard as well so it's a bit of an odd one I think I'm sure we'll come on to it in terms of what Chelsea probably need up up top next season but I don't think they necessarily maybe need a, a new striker and that might be a bit controversial but I think they've got so many good forwards already they are quite top heavy but they're just yeah the return rate hasn't been great I mean I looked into it before and 15 non-penalty league goals between Mount, Ziyech, Pulisic and Havertz in the league this season is you know, on paper, those those names you'd expect to be getting far more goals from from them. So I think that again, speaking about next season, again you'd expect them to improve upon those numbers, no doubt, and sticking with maybe the players and the system that they have. It does for both teams. This variety in terms of goal scorers make it very difficult to predict who might be the the one with their name in lights this weekend the one who might score the winning goal for example Kingsley Coman last season was the one uh, for Bayern Munich in terms of their summer plans uh, as we've said before about Manchester City when we spoke about them winning the Premier League title the the whole narrative about Manchester City's season and the narrative with which they'll move into the summer transfer window uh, will hinge on what happens in this game you'd think um Michael do you think they'll be despite what we've said about the the gloriously unpredictable nature of their attacking approach and how many varied goal threats they have, do you think Guardiola will insist on signing a a proper number nine in uh, inverted commas? Yeah, I think they'll look to get one in. I mean, Guardiola has tended to try to buy top-class number nines over his career. I mean, he bought Zlatan Ibrahimovic, he bought uh, Robert Lewandowski. Obviously, Lewandowski worked out better for him than Ibrahimovic, but he's not hes not completely allergic to playing with a proper number nine if they are good enough. And I think, really, if they're good at bringing others into play, and we're not getting into the realms of transfer, uh, transfer speculation, but the fact that Harry Kane has just finished uh, top assister and top goalscorer, that's the kind of forward that Guardiola does like. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with Mark, actually. I think Chelsea have got the tools there to potentially get around the issue without bring in another centre forward. I think actually Havertz could be the key. I think he's got something about him, some intelligence in the penalty box, obviously good at linking play. I think he can play with his back to goal. Seen elements of him being quite good in the air, albeit he's never going to be Giroud, but I think he's the real key player. And I'd be a little bit, if I was in charge of Chelsea's finances, I'd be a little bit reluctant to spend 60 or 70 million on a centre forward, considering I don't know if they're going to start week in, week out. Because I think sometimes Werner will lead the line. So, yeah, I'd, maybe just from a kind of biased perspective as someone who wants to see tactically interesting things happening, I'd rather they didn't just go out and buy a superstar number nine. I think, you know, playing around with the ingredients they've got could be really fun. I think that's key as well. Using like Liverpool as an example of just having a settled forward line. I know they've obviously got Jota this season, but typically Mane, Mane Salah and and Firmino, of course, that if you were to bring in a striker for Chelsea as well, you'd have new striker, the likes of Timo Werner, Ziyech, Pulisic, Mount, of course, um, probably missed off some names as well. But the, you think that you, sometimes you need players to just have a consistent run of games, even if they're in and out of form a little bit, just to build up that relationship with each other. And I feel like 
since all of them have kind of been together, they've not really had that opportunity to do that as well. So it's almost not too surprising that they haven't really gelled all that much because, I mean, I don't have the, the data behind it of how many minutes they've all played together, but there's just that element of of just, yeah, creating that form when they're all on the same pitch as well. And Mark, a lot of the work that you'll do for The Athletic is, um, you know, essentially scouting pieces, um, filling in blanks on players that might be part of transfer speculation for various clubs across the Premier League this summer. Manchester City, one of the richest clubs in the world. You you probably need to be a little less creative, a little less niche with the the names that that get churned out. But do you have any, any thoughts on which players City may go for or perhaps should go for, uh, slightly out, out of the ordinary perhaps? Um, for me, I, I quite like the look of uh, Andre Silva at Eintracht Frankfurt and it's not really a, too much of a niche one. I mean, he's he scored 27 league goals this season um, in the Bundesliga and that, that rate is actually only bettered by Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo and Robert Lewandowski. So I think that, that tells you quite a lot you know, in itself. And we spoke about penalties before and he has scored seven penalties, which obviously contribute to that. So, you know, you take them out, but still, I do think his underlying numbers really do still stack up in terms of the chances that he's getting for himself. So his, his non-penalty expected goals rate is is 0.62 per 90, according to FB ref. So he's getting chances kind of worthy of just shy of two goals every three games, if you were to, to put it like that, which is, you know, as you can imagine, a, a great rate. And he's only going to get more chances in a, in a City team. And He's, you know, he's only 25. He's he's Portuguese as well. I know that they've got something of a Portuguese contingent at, at City as well. They've obviously got João Cancelo and Bernardo Silva. So I think that that one for me could stand out as something that could be an interesting one. So um, Andre Silva, I think, should be in with a shout. The yeah. third Silva brother to play for uh, Manchester City in the last 15 years or so. Um, look, guys, we've looked ahead both to the the Champions League final between Chelsea and Manchester City and also at the summer that looms large uh, after this final. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. But now it's time for a short retrospective before we finish. I'm just interested to know from both of you what you think the best Champions League final since the year 2000 is. I think the obvious answer here is probably uh, Istanbul. Liverpool 3, AC Milan 3, 2005. But just an added bonus here, your choice can be based on anything from narrative to entertainment to just whatever floats your boat. And Michael, I really hope you're not going to let me down here. I just, I just positive you weren't going to pick Istanbul. No, I wasn't going to pick Istanbul because I thought you would sigh if I (laughs) picked Istanbul. I mean, that probably was the most entertaining. I think my favourite was I think people have forgotten how good this game was. 2013 between Dortmund and, and Bayern. Bayern 1-2-1. It was just a really close game between two really good teams. Incredible intensity. Dortmund really started the game well. Had a few good chances. Also started the second half well. But gradually their kind of pressing faded as the halves went on. And Bayern came into it more with the possession play. And I think I had four or five good chances towards the end before... Arjen Robin rolled the ball home, and that was nice. Robin had had a few disappointments in his career, 
had missed a couple of one-on-ones in the World Cup final three years before, missed a penalty against Chelsea uh, in the Champions League final of the year before. And I always just really liked Robin. I thought he was a brilliant player. So I was quite pleased that he got his name in lights and scored the winner. So, yeah, to be honest, they've generally been quite good. There haven't been many real thrillers. I mean, obviously, aside from Milan, Liverpool. But I don't think they've generally been bad games. I think the, the quality in general has been quite high. Probably Milan-Juve, that 0-0 in 2003, was probably the least. <laughs> the low point. Mark, what's your favourite memory when it comes to Champions League finals? Yeah, I'm glad that I haven't chosen the same one as Michael. Otherwise, it would have been a very quick you know, <laughs> segment from me. But I think mine was 2011, um, Barcelona-Man United, that one at Wembley, where Barcelona just performed a masterclass in just bossing a final, it's complete domination. It was you know, the team that they had, Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta in the middle. I know that you know they'd won it two years before, but that game in particular, because United were, were a good side at that point as well. And yeah, they they could almost just turn it on when they wanted to. It felt like they still even had two or three more gears in them. It was, it was just a ridiculous team, a ridiculous game. And yeah, I think that United sort of flirted with the idea of coming back into it when when Rooney scored and thought that they could maybe hold on to it, but Barcelona just went up another level. And I just I remember I recorded the the highlights of that game when I was younger, and I used to come back after school every every month or so and just watch the highlights back again because I was just it was just a masterclass. Um, so yeah, that one for me. It's actually a great goal that Rooney goal. I mean, no one remembers yeah. it obviously because I lost it. But one of the best goals you'll see in a Champions League final. There was some really good ones over the years, but two one twos and and then that finish into the corner was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> An angry finish from Wayne Rooney, uh, as they so often were. Look, I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys listening uh, which your favourite Champions League finals have been uh, and why, of course, because there's so many different things that that make a, a good Champions League final. I'm very hopeful that. Saturday night between Chelsea and Manchester City in Porto um, will be a contender, uh, not least because of the tactical side of things, the individual players on show, but certainly the Guardiola versus Tuchel angle that we've had a look at on this podcast. That piece by Rafa Honigstein is a, is a must read. It's certainly um, very very entertaining. The, the sort of uh, the images that it conjures in this bar in uh, in Munich, Guardiola and Tuchel going at it with the salt shakers. Uh, there's so much other good work on site at the moment as well as as you'd imagine lots of Champions League final preview content some really good stuff on there to read tons of Euro 2020 squad announcement reaction uh, as well and then things like James Horncastle doing what he does best his piece on Donnarumma leaving uh, Milan this summer loads of good stuff on site at the moment you can sign up if you're not a subscriber at theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking and you'll pay £3.99 for the first six months of your annual subscription and once you've got the Champions League final out the way do turn your attention to Euro 2020 because that's what we'll be doing on the Zonal Marking podcast. We'll have a week or so off uh, to let the dust settle after the Champions League final and then we're going to come straight at you with a Euro 2020 preview Zonal Marking style. I'm really excited to be covering the Euros on this podcast with Michael and Tom uh, and many others as well hopefully so please make sure you're subscribed. We'd love it if you could join us for the ride Uh, and go well. Enjoy the Champions League final. We'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman and I'm here to tell you what The Athletic has planned across its podcast network during the Euros. 
My pod with David Ornstein will become the Athletics England show throughout the tournament to bring you all the latest news and insight from inside the England camp every single day. Then we'll also have nightly editions of the Totally Football show, taking a look at all the big talking points from the competition and looking ahead to the next day's fixtures. Now, if you're feeling nostalgic for tournaments past, we've produced an eight-part documentary series that tells some fascinating stories from both on and off the pitch from the last eight Euros. Elsewhere, Michael Cox's Zonal Marking Pod will offer an in-depth tactical breakdown of all the biggest games, while Adam Hurry's Football Clichés show will take a look at the tournament's alternative storylines. So, as this never-ending domestic season finally draws to a close, We'll have plenty of Euro 2020 coverage for you to enjoy as the tournament gets underway in just a couple of weeks' time. The Athletic.